You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for August 2008. Today's episode is titled, Hiring Christians. One of the most common questions asked by Christian employers and managers is, should I only hire Christians? There are some who have had bad experiences hiring Christians who ask, why hire Christians? Clearly, this is a perplexing issue. If Jesus is the model for excellent workers, then employers should look for people who work like Jesus. Finding someone who works as Jesus did is very difficult. Therefore, employers need to be diligent to train their workers in a biblical worldview of work. If you can't hire people who work from a biblical worldview, you must train them. Hiring Christians. I have done it. Um, I ran the family business for about 10 years. And I was a Christian during that time. And I thought, what a great idea to hire Christians to work in my organization. And my batting average with Christians was about 50%. About half of them were total duds. Okay, Now, what can happen is you can walk away from that thinking, well, I just don't want to hire Christians because they're not good workers. And a lot of people do conclude that. But let me suggest that is a wrong perspective. First, you've got to realize what a Christian is. A person is not a Christian because they say they're a Christian. They're not a Christian because they go to church. They are a Christian because they look like Christ, and they think like Christ, and they act like Christ. And that's what, it, what I mean when I talk about walking in a biblical worldview. Okay, so you first got to understand that. Secondly, we have to understand that our paradigm of Christianity that's, that's popular in the world today that we are all steeped in is dualistic. Dualism is the separation of physical and spiritual reality. When we, when we do that, what we're doing is we're saying physical reality is not important. The only thing important is spiritual reality. Now, that all assumes you can separate them. Now, what gives you the right to separate spiritual and physical reality? Now, stop and think about it. Who created the universe? Are we in agreement that God made the universe? Does everybody agree with that? Okay. So if we, we accept that as a given that God created the universe, now, is God a spirit being? We accept that he's a spirit being. Okay. We see that in John 4. So if God is a spirit being and God created the universe, that mean the, means the physical came from the spiritual. See, and that's a law of the universe. The physical comes from the spiritual. So the physical work that we do in the workplace is a manifestation of the spiritual. Now see, that's hard for us to get. I mean, you could take it even a step further. And I'm, I'm, I'm training some of my disciples right now on how to do this. And that is, my thesis is this. Your, your work, your actions, and your attitudes are a direct reflection of your theology. That is what you believe to be true about God. Now, see, when you hire the people that uh, all they want to do is evangelize, that's their theology. They have misunderstood the Great Commission. Okay? How many of you have read the Great Commission? Okay? What do you think the Great Commission says? Make disciples. It, anywhere, does it say anywhere in the Great Commission to evangelize? No. no, it doesn't. We have put that interpretation on it. 
We, we, the common interpretation of the Great Commission is it, it's an authorization for world evangelism. But that's not what it says. And I, I just want to read it to you, then I want to illustrate to you, you know, <clears throat> how to really properly interpret this text, and then how to apply it. It's Matthew 28. By the way, how many of you put much credibility in a principle that's only mentioned once in Scripture? Do you put a lot of credibility in it? You know, I was talking to somebody recently. We were talking about the principle of Matthew 18 about the process of dealing with conflicts, the threefold process mentioned there. And this particular person said, well, I don't put much stock in that because it's only mentioned once. I said, really? So once isn't enough. Well, if once is not enough, then you're going to have a problem with the Great Commission because arguably it's, it, at most it's mentioned twice. The text in Mark is a questionable text. The, uh, the scholars are not totally sure that was actually in the original manuscripts. So at least Matthew is here. So we have one time the Great Commission is mentioned. And how does the Great Commission start? Does anybody remember? Hmm? No, it does not start that way. No. Nope. You see, you guys need to know how it starts. This is important. All authority. There you go. That's how it starts. All right. Huh? Now, that's important. Why, why does he start out saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth? There's a huge me- message there. That's right. But Jesus is living under derived authority. The whole principle of derived authority. You live under derived authority. What gives you authority in your home? Huh? God has given you authority in your home. Who's given you authority in your business? God has given you authority in your business. Who gives you authority in your community? Ultimately, it's God gives you authority. See, we all live under derived authority. Jesus understood derived authority. We don't. We don't get it. We live in presumption. We just presume that we are in charge. We can do what we want to do when we want to do it, how we want to do it. Jesus did not live under that presumption. He lived under the, the, the understanding of derived authority. So he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. So does that include everything? Is there anything that's excluded? Is business excluded? We tend to want to exclude business because we want to put business in the physical realm and disconnect it from the spiritual. But nothing is disconnected from the spiritual because everything ultimately is rooted in spiritual reality. Whatever you believe to be true about God will drive everything in your life. It drives who you marry. It drives where you live. It drives what house you live in. It drives where you work and why you, why you work. It drives how well you work. It drives who you work with. It, it drives what church you go to. It drives whether or not you play golf, what country club you might belong to. Everything comes back to your theology, what you believe to be true about God. Let me just give you some examples. I was uh, talking to a client of mine recently, and he was telling me about his CFO. He said, man, this CFO of mine, he's he's a real real pistol. You know, he, uh, number one, he won't listen. Number two, he's not a team player. Okay. Number three, he has to be right. I said, that's really interesting. What's going on there? He says, I don't know. I don't know what to do with it. I said, well, tell me. 
What do you think his theology is? Now, how do you think he, this is, I'm talking to a CEO of a pretty good-sized company. What do you think he said to me? What does theology have to do with it? Isn't that what we'd naturally say? Hey, theology is about Sunday, right? That's nothing to do with, with being a CFO in a company. I said, no, it has everything to do with it. Because that guy is driven by a theology. And let me just pose a theory to you. That guy's theology is that he has to perform and be right to be acceptable with God. And he can't trust anybody else. So he's not going to be a team player. He's not going to listen well. And he has to be right. That's what's driving his actions. Ooh. Is that a different thought? You want another example? Okay. I was talking to uh, another client of mine, and he has a manager. And this particular manager uh, is very difficult to work with. Number one is you cannot see this manager on short notice. You have to make an appointment. Okay. Number two, you can't talk to this manager about whatever you want to talk about. He has to control the conversation. Okay. And number three, he has to be right about everything. He cannot handle being wrong. It turns out this manager is a pastor. So I said, well, let's talk about you know, what's going on here. Of course, the manager is asking me, what do I do? I said, well, let's, let's, let's talk about the theology. And what kind of response did I get? <laughs> what's theology got to do with it? I said, everything. Because his theology is driving everything in his life. So what is it his, what's his theology? Well, he's a pastor. You know, he teaches Jesus. I said, okay, what's his theology about Jesus? And so we began a dialogue, and when we got through with the conversation, he realized that this guy, though he's teaching grace on Sunday, doesn't really believe grace is enough. He has to do more than receive Christ. He has to perform out of duty. He hasn't gotten it that what Christ is all about is giving us eternal life, and then out of gratitude, we live for him. So he's still living and works. And this guy's teaching and pastoring here locally. But now, as you begin to understand this reality, you have a clue how to pray for him. You can't go fix somebody and make them, make them a team player by working on the symptom. Or by telling them, yeah, you, you shouldn't be so critical of everybody. You, shouldn't, you, shouldn't, you should listen more. Have anybody tried to do that? Come on, those of you that manage, you may, how far did you get? Yeah, you didn't get very far. I mean, I've been there, done that myself. But what happens if I start praying for that man to receive a revelation of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And he really got it, that he's secure by receiving Christ, and he doesn't have to perform to gain acceptance with God, and now he can live out of gratitude. What do you think that would do to his life? Now, what you're talking, now you've just all those symptoms that you saw, they go away. Because now you've got a guy that's now living in peace. Because these two examples I've given you, these guys have no peace. No peace at all. One of them is a pastor, a professing Christian. The other one is a professing atheist. Both of them had bad theology, and both of them get the same results. See, so point, point I'm making with you is you can't assume that somebody is a Christian because they say they're Christian, even if they say they're a pastor. Hey, I pastor a church. That doesn't mean anything. I know that's hard for us to get to because, you know, we have this dualistic paradigm we, of Christianity that, you know, 
the church is over here and business is over here, but that's not the way that God, that's not the way that God made the world. In fact, he made what we call a universe. And we keep trying to make it a multiverse. It is not a multiverse. It is a universe. All the principles of God work in his universe. Those of you that know, know who Marion Wade is, how many of you know who Marion Wade is or was? He's deceased now. Y'all don't know who Marion Wade was? You know, one of the things that's happening to us is we're becoming disconnected with our heritage. Do you know that? Marion Wade built Service Master. Y'all know who Service Master is? Service Master, over the last century, is arguably one of the greatest Christian companies, and I use the term Christian in the sense that that company was built on a biblical worldview. And what did it was a revelation that Marion Wade got when he nearly was killed. He nearly died. And in the hospital room, before they had TV, all he had was this book, which we call the Bible, and, and prayer. He did, did that for nearly a year in the hospital room, not knowing if he was going to live or die. And during that time, he came to a revelation. He realized that he had been a very faithful church attender. He had been a great Bible teacher. He had led his youth group. He had, died, he had tithed regularly. His pastor thought he was a great Christian. But Marion came, became convinced that he was bankrupt. He was spiritually bankrupt. And the reason he was spiritually bankrupt was simple. He realized that he was a dualist. At home and at church, this word was the authority. But when he got into the work situation, he put the Bible aside and he practiced the principles of the world. And he realized that was wrong. That's not the way that God made the universe. And so what he did, he asked the Lord, he said, Lord, if you will grant me life, I, pr- I commit to you to make this book, your, bu- your word, the Bible, the handbook for my business. And I will build it only on biblical principles. When Marion Wade got out of the hospital in 1945 and went back to his fledgling business, by the way, it was a home-based business and had been for 15 years, had five or six employees, he walks in the door and says, guys, I want you to know I have met Jesus. Well, boss, I mean, you were a great Christian before. I have met Jesus and I've had a transformation. This now, this book, the Bible is now the handbook of our business. We will make every decision. Every policy, everything that we do will be rooted in the Word of God. Are you with me or not? Please feel no pressure. He gave him freedom. Don't feel any pressure. If you're not buying into this, hey, I bless you. But this is the way the business is going to be run. Everyone bought into it. And that's what launched this fledgling home-based business into becoming the service master that you know today. It was the discarding of dualism and embracing holistic Christianity. So that's a, that's a picture. It's an illustration of the power of recognizing how God made the universe to work. So to answer your question about, about Christians, hiring Christians, okay, the problem that most of the, here's the problem we have with most Christian workers, is we're not being trained biblically in our homes, in our churches, in our Christian schools. Now, Please, I'm not trying to offend anybody. I know a lot of you may have devotions at home and you may pray and all that kind of stuff. But if you're not teaching a biblical worldview of work, teaching people how to work as unto the Lord, and teaching people that God values work, if you're not teaching them that, then you will produce people that don't value work. And that's what you're running into. 
is we don't have, there's not any place that's producing people with a biblical worldview of work. And we're going to talk about that over the next couple of meetings. What is a biblical worldview of work? What does that look like? And I think you're going to be amazed at what Scripture has to say about that. I have a client uh, who's in the flooring business, and uh, he wrote me a letter. He's been through a number of my teachings, and I did a biblical worldview of investing back in January, and, uh, which was a day-and-a-half seminar. And arguably, from my perspective, it's the best seminar I've ever done. Uh, it, I spent enormous amounts of time studying for it, getting ready for it, and the fruit of it was just phenomenal. It's a great time. This man came to that event. And so he's been processing on what he heard at that seminar for several months. He finally sent me an email, and he sells flooring. He does not, he's not local. He's out of state. But um, <clears throat> he wanted to share with me some of his operating practices because what he came, what he came to conclude was that not only does my company need a great value proposition, I need a personal value proposition. I said, hey, that's pretty good, a personal value proposition. And he realized that, that he needed to come up with ways to look like Jesus when he goes into a house to sell a floor. That's what he does. He, basically, people call in to the floor company, and they schedule appointments, and he goes out, and he meets them in their home, looks at their carpet, their hardwood floors, or whatever they need, their tile floor, and he works with them on, on selling new floors. And he said, so I, I decided I need to have a great personal value proposition. So he started adopting some practices. Okay, uh, Number one, before he goes in, he prays. Well, that's a simple thing. You can do that. Just pray, Lord. I just want to be your emissary in this place. I want to represent you. I want to reflect you. I want to be sensitive to the needs of the people. And it's not about money. Oh, that's different. It's not about money. I mean, we think that's what business is all about. No. He says, no, it's not about money. That's one of the things you learn as you begin to get a biblical worldview is that money is a byproduct of obedience. We think money is a byproduct of hard work. We think it's about, you know, getting tough and being out there and competing. No, my money is a byproduct of obedience to God. How do we know that? Matthew 6.33. A great text, which most people, when they really get to looking at that text, begin to really wrestle with it. That text says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and I'll take care of your needs. The context of the verse is your daily needs. Food, clothing, shelter, you know, all the things that you need money to buy. What he's saying, what Jesus is saying here is, look, make it a priority to think about the rule and reign of God. And righteousness is the principles of God. So what my, my friend, my client, understood that reality. So money was not the object. He was going in there to bring the rule and reign of God into where, wherever he had authority. Remember, he operates under derived authority. So where do you have authority? Bring in the rule and reign of God and do it according to biblical principles. So he's walking into the house. So as he's walking in, he's trying to bring the kingdom of God with him. And so one of the first things he does is he looks for a way to bless the people before he walks in the door. He'll pick up the newspaper. He'll roll up the water hose. Um, he'll pick up some trash. He'll do something to, to bless the people. The next thing, once he gets in the house, he is listening. He's listening. I'm not trying to talk Jamie into buying a floor. I'm trying to discern what it is that Jamie needs so Jamie can do what Jamie's called to do. You ever thought about that? Selling that floor is not about selling the floor. It's about facilitating what God is doing in that home. I have another client that's a home decorator, and we, had, we were having a new numbers conversation several years ago 
about the same topic. You know, she, she was saying, how is it that my work can honor God? How can it glorify God? How can it be kingdom work? I said, well, the reality is, what are you doing when you go into a home? And she thought about it for a while, and she says, you know, I think I see it. What I'm doing is I'm setting the set for the play. For whatever it is that God is doing in this home, I'm setting, I'm setting the props in place so that will facilitate that play. And it's important that it's beautiful. Did you know beauty was put into God's creation? If you look in Genesis 2, it says that God put things in there that were beautiful. The rivers were beautiful. The, the plants were beautiful. Isn't it nice that God's put beauty in his creation? We can be here and look out at this beautiful creation. Well, that's, God put it that way for us to enjoy. That's part of his universe. So anyway, she got it. She got it that she had a very important role to play in discerning what does the play set need to look like in this home for God to do what he wants to do. Well, my, my floor guy, he saw the same thing. And so he's walking in the door trying to discern what the Holy Spirit wants to do and how he wants to bless these people. And one time he walked in and the, the woman was gone and the man was there. And they had to wait for the woman to get there to have their meeting. And so he wants to redeem his time. He's saying, how can I bless this man? Well, it turns out this man is painting his daughter's room. So my client says, well, here, I'll help you. And so he helps the guy paint the daughter's room. And then on another occasion, he is in a, in a customer's home. And the customer starts sharing how, you know, you know he sensed there's something about this guy that's unusual. And, and so he, he felt an open door. So he starts sharing his faith with the guy. And the, and the guy says, hey, you know, my dad really wants to go to church, but he, he can't drive. He says, where does your dad live? He says, he lives so-and-so. I said, well, that's close to me. I'll go pick him up. I'll take him to church. You see how he's thinking? See, that's, that's, that's a person that recognizes that he's on assignment. I think we ought to, to stop using the word job. We need to start talking about assignment. What is your assignment? What is your assignment? What is your assignment? As we start thinking about assignments, suddenly the work becomes much more significant. It's not a job. And it's not about evangelism. In fact, I'm going to show, later on I'm going to show you. Well, I'll show you right now. Let me show you how, what I think is the greatest way to evangelize. Those of you who have your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts. Chapter 18. If you don't have your Bible, that's okay. I'll, I'll just I'll read this thing to you. Um, excuse me, it's Acts chapter 19. Paul started his third missionary journey, and he goes to uh, he goes to Corinth, and he's, it, in verse one it says he found some disciples. These disciples were disciples of Apollos. Apollos was a Jew from Africa who understood a lot of truth, but he didn't understand much about Jesus. And so Priscilla and Aquila had corrected Apollos in his understanding about Jesus. And so Apollos apparently hadn't had time to teach his disciples before he left and went to another city. So Paul shows up and finds these disciples of Apollos. And they have this dialogue about, you know, what baptism you receive. Well, I had the baptism of of John. I said, well, let me tell you about the baptism of Jesus. And so explain that to him. And of course, then miraculous things happen. They spoke in tongues and they prophesied and all that kind of stuff, which is, or indicators of the Holy Spirit. And so <clears throat> Paul then starts preaching in the synagogue. 
verse 7, it says, Now there were, the men were about twelve in all. That's referring to the disciples. And then he, he, that is Paul, went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning, persuading, concerning the things of the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God. It's what we were put here to do. Genesis 1 tells us why God made man. He made man to rule his creation, which is why one of the reasons that work is important. We're to rule his creation. Work is a vehicle to rule his creation. You ask yourself, what is the biblical basis for work? You ever thought about that? And we don't think that way, do we? Work's just about making money, right? Work's about making money so we can take and sow into kingdom projects, right? Tithe and that kind of stuff. That's, that's what we think. That's the dualism we bought into. No, work has value because God made us to work. Have you ever seen somebody retire? You ever notice what happens when they retire? You know, pretty soon they're either very miserable or they're looking for something else to do, aren't they? Because, mo you know, it's the rare person that wants to sit around and do nothing. And if that person were really honest with you, he'd probably tell you he's pretty miserable. Because there's something in us that's systemic because God made it this way that we want to work. We want to do things. What gets in the way is our view of money. We've got a bad view of money. We let money drive our decisions because money is never intended to be the engine of decisions. Money is the byproduct of obedience. I was talking to somebody, was it, I guess I was talking to you about follow your heart. One of the indicators about what you're supposed to do in life is what's in your heart. Look at what God put into you. Look at the opportunities you have. Look, what, look where you have favor. Look where, when you go to work, you just can't hardly wait. You just love doing it. That's an indicator of what God wants you to do. Don't follow the money. Follow the passion that God's put in your heart. How many of you have read the book, um, uh, Success Built to Last? Okay, this is not built to last, but this is a sequel to it, Success Built to Last. This is a book I highly recommend. It, this book will be respected in any academic setting in the world. It's a, it's a study of 200 of the most successful people in the world. And they, these researchers went around and talked to each one of these people individually and wanted to understand why is it that you've had this success. And there are several things that they discovered. Okay? I'm going to give you a couple of them right now. Number one, the key to their success is they follow their passion. Whether they're saved or not, Christians or not, they follow the passion. Now, where did that passion come from? It came from God. Because every one of them was created by God. We keep thinking that unsaved people aren't created by God. No, unsaved people are created by God. And God puts in them passion too. And he, he has a purpose for their lives too because God does everything with purpose. So they followed the passion that God put in their lives. The second thing that was most almost, it was incredible to the researchers. And that was not a single one of them ever thought they would be rich. They never did this for money. Money was never the driver. Now you go to any business school today, what, what are you going to be hearing? The whole thing is about money. We're going to get you an MBA so you can go make a bunch of money. That's the driver. I had lunch yesterday with a guy that's joining, just joined an entrepreneurial program in another city. And we had a long conversation. I said, here's, here's my advice to you. I said, do not get sucked into the trap of chasing money. That is a bad road. It will lead you down to a lot of heartache and a lot of headache. I've already made that mistake. Learn from me. It doesn't work. Okay? And probably a lot of you in this room have made that mistake. It doesn't work. Follow what God has put in your heart. 
And so the researchers are telling us over and over again how to do it. And you do it by obedience. So anyway, getting back to Acts 19 here. So um, Paul is going to the synagogue to share, you know, about what he understands about Jesus Christ to the Jews. So he boldly spoke, verse 8, spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way, and the way is another, another way to say biblical worldview. That's just another, another term for that. Before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the, the, uh, the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Okay, now what, he, what he's saying here is I'm taking my 12 disciples here, and we're going to go, and every day we're going to sit down and we're going to talk about the kingdom of God and what that means and what that looks like. And this, verse 10, and this continued for two years. Now, what do you think the result of that was? Two years of studying every day the scriptures to understand the kingdom of God. Has anybody ever done that? Some of you may have been to Bible school, but you probably didn't study the scriptures like Paul was teaching it. We're talking about the kingdom of God holistically in what it looks like in marriage, what it looks like in church, what it looks like in business, what it looks like in governing our community, every area of life. For two years, they do this every day. What do you think the fruit of that was with these 12 men? How about world evangelism? Look what's happened. Verse 10. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus. You hear that? We're running around doing world evangelism all wrong. Because we don't read the scriptures and see how God designed for it to work. The way we evangelize the world is we make disciples. Now let me suggest this. Those of you, how many of you manage people? So, okay. Let me suggest to you what management is all about. What management is, is pastoring people. That's what it is. I have, I have a client up in Canada. No, oh, I've got several clients in Canada, but this particular one, we're having lunch here a few months ago. And he's got it. Uh, um, he has another consultant that kind of works with him uh, up there, and he has his wife, who is his HR person in his, his company. And so I, I mentioned this. I said management is effectively pastoring, and he says, "No, it isn't." <laughs> I said, "Okay, let's talk about what pastoring is." You know, most of us don't think we have. A, we don't have a biblical view of pastoring. Does that surprise you? We don't have a biblical view of pastoring. I mean, I run into this, I, I, I could give you other stories, but <clears throat> most of us think pastoring is kind of a, kind of a mamby-pamby, Casper milk toast kind of thing. Well, it's visitation and going to the hospital and, and helping the people that are grieving over the loss of a loved one and marrying and, you know, they'll kind of, like a chaplain, you know, nothing really serious. Nobody's going to challenge you. Nobody's going to hold you accountable. Just somebody's going to be tender, kind of ooey-gooey. And so we're having this conversation over lunch. I said, let, let me describe to you uh, what, what I see in Scripture. Okay, you look at what a shepherd does. A shepherd is a picture of a pastor. Yeah, I see that. Okay, what's he do? Well, a shepherd leads the flock. A shepherd leads the flock to water and to food. Yeah. A shepherd keeps the flock together to protect it from the wolves. A shepherd binds up the wounds of the sheep that are hurt. Yeah, yeah, I got all that. And what does a shepherd do with that sheep that keeps wandering off? He goes out and gets them over and over again, right? And eventually, what does the shepherd do? He says, I don't know. I said, he breaks her legs. He said, I can do that. <laughs> See? 
Most managers can break the legs, but the reality is you need to do the whole enchilada. Because what you need to do is get people to write theology so that they will be great workers. When they begin to live out a healthy theology, that releases the potential in them. That releases them to do what they're called to do. See, that's where management theory today is off. If you are studying management theory from Harvard, the Harvard Business School or any business school or from you know, the articles that you see in the Wall Street Journal and, and Business Week and other places like that, you are going to see a truncated view of management. You need to study management like Marion, Marion Wade did. You pick up the Word of God and say, how do we manage? This book will tell you how to manage if you have eyes to see and ears to hear. So, discipleship is the game in life. What you need to be doing as a manager is discipling your people to release the potential in them, which will release the word of God into your company, which is going to release the favor of God, the flow of God, the kingdom of God, which, by the way, the byproduct is going to be money. Now, don't do that for money. Do it out of obedience. If you say, ah, i got a new formula. I know how to make money now. No, that's not the game. The game is always a heart of obedience. That's what we're called to have. Okay, long answer to your question. But the reality, the problem you're dealing with is you've got untrained people. Many of them are not even Christians at all. They have a dualistic mindset okay, about what work, that work is, has no value. You've got to give them a biblical worldview of work. And you've got to begin to pastor them and disciple them into their destiny. And God has a destiny for them. Some of them that you hire, maybe they're not supposed to be with you. Then you need to help them find their place. And I have seen over and over again when, when managers start doing that, God sends the right people in. I could tell you stories about that where people have really committed to being the kingdom company and how it's totally transformed everything in the business and how God brought the right people and the wrong people left. If you, if you begin to see what, what management really is, it's helping people get to good theology in their life. Recognizing that whenever, whatever you see in your, in your organization, whatever's going on, bad attitudes, lying, deceiving, lack of team play, all that's reflection of bad theology. The root is, you've got to get to the root. If you don't get to the root, you're never going to solve anything. You put band-aids on things, you know, we put rules in place. You can't do that anymore. You do that, I'm going to fire you. Well, you, okay, you put a rule in place. Now you've got to, you've got to police that. You know, pretty soon you've got so many rules, there's not enough time in your day to do anything else but police the rules. And if you don't police the rules, what happens? Now, you have no credibility. You know, the solution is not a bunch of rules. The solution is Jesus. You're helping people get an understanding of Jesus Christ in their life. And as a manager, what you need to do, and I talk about this in my book, is a concept of equal yoking in Scripture. That is a powerful concept. And I, I can tell you that every company I've ever been in, and this includes churches too, which I've been in a whole scat of those of churches, has essentially the same problems. Okay? Number one, nobody has a biblical worldview of work. Okay? Number two, most people are out of place. In fact, the, the, the researchers have concluded that. The researchers have concluded that about 84% of the workforce does not have a passion for what they're doing. How does that make you feel? 84% of the workforce does not have a passion for what they're doing. Have you ever done something you don't have a passion for? Huh? Has anybody ever done that? It's not... You, you, you know, you're not excited about getting up in the, in the morning. And you're certainly not going to do a great job. You're not going to go the extra mile. 
You're not going to do the extra to make it really good. What happens if you really got a passion to do something? Hey, there's nothing that's going to get in your way. What happens if we had everybody lined up with their passion? What kind of potential do you think we might release? Yeah, could be incredible. Absolutely incredible. Management is about getting people in the right place. So I see people out of place, and the, th- the third thing I see over and over again in companies is unequal yoking. And the way you know you're unequally yoked is you have conflict. Anybody got conflict? I know you guys don't. You guys all have harmonious relationships. You're all equally yoked. No conflict at all. No. Every organization I've ever been in, I cannot tell you one of them that I looked at the, the management team or project team or any team of people and said, this team is equally yoked. There's always something, someone that needs to be pastored, and usually the whole team needs to be pastored, into a right theology so they can now do what God created them to do. You are doing business in God's universe. The only thing that works in God's universe are God's principles. The unsaved of the world, the only level of success they have is the degree of alignment with God's principles. That's it. A good illustration of this is Southwest Airlines. Okay? Southwest Airlines is the only airlines that consistently makes money. You all know that, don't you? You're aware of that. Uh, several years ago, there was a project done where they, they took all the publicly held airlines from the inception of the industry up to that point in time, excluding Southwest, and they added up the net profit of all the airlines. You know what the number was? Negative. Essentially zero, which is why Warren Buffett will not invest in an airline. He knows that. But Southwest Airlines has made money every year since 1972 and continue to. Why do they do that? Okay. From what I've been able to determine, it's because of Herb Kelleher's mother. Did you know that? Do you know what she taught him? She taught him the golden rule. And he got it. And he has been faithful to practice that throughout his career. And that is the driving principle in Southwest Airlines is the golden rule. They just, just take one principle and say, man, we're going to do that faithfully. And look at the power that it released. You know, American Airlines doesn't practice the golden rule. You know that, don't you? I mean, we've got all kinds of examples of that going on right now. And you just look at the acrimony that they always have between labor and management out there. It's just always a mess. Okay? And now they've got another mess with the FAA. All right, so if you're playing in God's universe, God's rules are the only thing that are going to work. And so when even unsaved people obey God's principles by common grace, then they bless us. They bless us. You guys feel safe going to a restaurant and eating? Okay, most of them. You feel, you know, we don't think much. We just go down here and go to whatever restaurant. We don't think about, we just go in there and eat, don't we? What keeps you from being poisoned? Huh? It's because somebody there values life enough to not do it. That's the grace of God. And that's following the biblical principle, the biblical principle of valuing life. You see, that's the only thing that works in God's universe is God's principles. So no matter who you're around, whether they're professing Christians or not, it doesn't matter. You've got to do the same things. You always bring God's rule and reign, his principles to bear to the organization. Now, you don't have to mention where you got them. You can be very, very covert about, you know, where they came from. If somebody asks you, well, these are principles I found in the Word of God. And you can, you can grab my book if you want, and you can find a whole bunch of them. In fact, I got an email this week from an insurance agent up in Minnesota, 
And he's been through my book. He's been through virtually all my teachings. I've got oh, about another 15 or 20 audio products that are teaching biblical principles of business. He's gone through virtually all but three, he said. And he sent me a list of the principles he pulled out. And I had never done this myself. He had 180 principles. I thought, wow. And he wanted to go share this with his, his, he's got a group like a C12 group up there, and he wanted to go share it with us. I said, hold it. You know, that may be a little overkill. Let's just do this one at a time, okay? So that's the way you do it. Follow God's principles, and you have blessings in God's universe. 